Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try to help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. We've been working on a series of signposts through the book of Amos and today I want to read Amos chapter 7. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested and just as the late crops were coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either. Said, the Sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah, earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy any more at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor a son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd and I also took care of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord say, you say, Do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up and you yourself will die in a pagan country and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Well, chapter 7 begins the third and final section of uh, the book of, of Amos. Uh, and the focus of this section is five visions of judgment and the implications for opening up the people's eyes to the truth of their situation. The people have stubbornly refused to be faithful to their covenant with God. They've refused to obey the law of God and in fact have gone out of their way to break it. In doing so, they have brought the judgment of God upon themselves. As we noted in an earlier signpost, in various ways, Amos warned the people about their complacency and he warns us also. It's dangerously easy to mistake God's long-suffering patience for divine indifference. As Roy Clements notes, in chapter 7, Amos brings that central lesson of his entire book into its sharpest focus. Human failure to meet God's moral standards provokes God. It provokes him intensely, and it is only by virtue of a supreme demonstration of divine patience that that provo provocation does not lead to uh, immediate summary destruction for those responsible for it. That's the lesson of these visions. The first three of the five visions are found here in chapter 7. 
uh, and as well as bringing the danger of complacency, complacency into sharper focus, they also continue the basic themes of the book detailed in chapters 1 uh, verses 1 to 2 with an emphasis on God as the God who speaks, revealing his will and the Lord of history, the Lord of creation. The first vision in verses 1 to 3 show God in the process of forming a, a locust swarm just about the time when the crops are growing in late March and April. Now we should note this vision is still to happen, uh, the events in this vision rather are still to happen. The Hebrew text carries the sense that Amos sees the Lord has decided to send a swarm of locusts but he hasn't yet done it, he's kind of getting it together. The timing of the swarm is critical for we're told specifically that it came after the king's share had been harvested and just before the second harvest. So although the needs of royalty have been met, the poor peasant farmers will be in serious trouble. If the locusts had come a few weeks earlier, there would not yet be any sprouting grain and thus no harm to Israel's farmers. If it had come later, the crops would be set back by the locusts but not totally destroyed. Coming as it does just before the harvest of the second crop will make the destruction all the more complete. And many in Israel will suffer greatly. In fact, many will probably starve to death with no food to store for the winter. The detail of the vision not only highlights the seriousness of this judgment, but also it highlights Amos's central continual concern for the poor and needy. He knows that if the vision is fulfilled and God does send a swarm of locusts on Israel, it's the poor and needy who will suffer the most, who've already been suffering so much. It's the poor farmers who will be left in a hopeless situation. When he realises the extent of the judgment and how it will affect the people, Amos does something that he's not yet done in, in this book. He intercedes with God on behalf of the people. And it's worthwhile taking a few uh, note of some of the few features of Amos's prayer. Firstly, although there's no mention of the people's sin, the fact that it's a swarm of locusts calls to mind the plague that, that God brought upon the Egyptians for their sins. The connection with the Exodus story is further made when we consider that like Moses during the incident with the golden calf in Exodus 32 to 34, in his prayer Amos shows that his hope is on the long-suffering and patient nature of God. Unlike Moses, he doesn't reason that, uh, with God that God's good name will be the laughingstock of the nation if he destroys his people. It's important to note that, especially given the similarities between the ancient nation of Israel and our own nation in the 21st century, that it may only be God's long-suffering patience that is saving us from destruction for our nation's many sins. You look around you, you see the social fabric of the nation is crumbling. Moral values that God's word declares to be for our good are not just mocked, they're being openly, deliberately overthrown. What God calls evil, we now call good. Uh, what God calls good, we now call evil. And it may only be God's patience that is preventing us from uh, judgment. Or maybe, uh, perhaps we are beginning to experience the judgment of God. Secondly, Amos's prayer is motivated by a deep concern for the people. Even though they've sinned, he loves his people and he wants them to abandon their behaviour, to repent and turn around, to come back to God and then they will know all the blessings of shalom. I think that the launchpad for all mission and intercession for others is love for them, love for them within our own hearts. The Christian singer uh, Steve Camp once wrote, don't tell them Jesus loves them unless you're ready to love them too, until your heart breaks from their sorrow and the pain 
they're going through. It's a slightly different take on a, an old cliche that people won't care what you know until they know that you care. But just because that's become uh, something of a cliche doesn't make it any less true. We shouldn't engage in mission within our community because we want to increase the membership of our church or because it will look good on the church's annual charity report. Nor should we engage in mission just because we're supposed to, because Jesus commands it in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. John tells us in his Gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his Son. In short, mission begins when our hearts are filled with that same love. Intercession for others begins when we have love for them in our hearts, as Amos obviously has here for his people. Thirdly, Amos boldly asks for God's forgiveness. Even though forgiveness is usually based on a previous response of repentance by the sinner, but there's been no such response here. When a sinner repents and confesses their sin to God, God no longer holds the sinner accountable and the punishment is removed. Since there is no sign of any repentance by Israel, Amos is asking for an act of unmerited, undeserved grace by God. He knows that Israel will not survive unless God acts towards them with grace and mercy. Now, from the text, we can see that God responded immediately to Amos's prayer. And his response is surprising, given all that we've read in Amos up till now. In response to Amos's prayer, God changed his mind about the plague of locusts. And some people see this change of mind as a kind of proof that God is capricious and inconsistent. But God's relenting does not imply inconsistency on his part, but rather the fact that God is always, there's a willingness to express his mercy and be faithful to his covenant. God does not desire that any would perish, but he wants all to repent and turn to him. The most surprising thing about this is that God stops the plague before it begins without any prerequisite conditions. He doesn't say, well, I'll forgive them if they do this. This is a, an act of pure grace and mercy that the people are being shown. And we shouldn't miss the fact that this is in response to prayer on their behalf. Amos stands in the role of mediator between God and his people as he intercedes for them. And we should note then that one person's prayer can change the fate of a nation. It's easy to complain bitterly about the state that the United Kingdom is in, and boy, is it in a state. However, perhaps what we need to do instead of just complaining about it is perhaps we need to start praying about it, praying for our nation before God. And the Bible is full of examples where the prayer of one person has altered the course of history. Nehemiah's prayer set in motion a chain of events that led to the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the return of the exiles. Elijah's prayer brought drought for three years when he prayed for it to rain, it did. Lest we think that these men were spiritual giants of the faith whom we could never measure up, James 5 and 17 tells us that Elijah was a man just like us. And the purpose of James saying that is to try and encourage all Christians to pray. To know that your prayer matters and it can change the very course of history. The second vision in verse 4 to 6 is even more devastating than the first. Instead of locusts, it's a fire that sweeps across the land and destroys it. Now, we've recently seen the impact of wildfires in California, in Greece, um, all over the place, in Spain as well, um, with huge numbers of firefighters struggling to contain fires. It's heartrending to hear the stories of people who lost everything. 
I think that the image of fire here is symbolic in this vision for it's described as having devoured the great deep and eaten up the land. The term great deep probably refers to the subterranean water table and no real fire could dry that up. The sense then is that this is divine fire that symbolises judgement on Israel that would leave nothing in its wake. Once again, Amos intercedes on behalf of the nation, but this time he doesn't ask for forgiveness. He simply asks God to stop because Israel is so small it would never survive such judgment and the whole nation would be wiped out. Once more, God grants Amos' request, further highlighting not only the importance of praying on behalf of others, but also the gracious and merciful character of God. The fire is stopped before it starts and God is once more revealed as long-suffering and surprisingly patient, the God who extends his grace to an undeserving people again and again. The third vision in verses 7 to 9 pictures God as a builder standing by a wall that's been built with a plumb line. A plumb line is basically a, a piece of string with a weight on the end. As gravity pulls on the weight, the result is that the string uh, gives a true vertical. It's essential when building a wall or hanging wallpaper. God will re-measure the wall, which in the vision represents Israel, to see if it's still true, if it's still straight, to see if it still measures up to the standard by which it was built. There's an unspoken assumption in the church today, I think, that the longer a person has been a Christian, the more mature and spiritual they must be. But of course, that's not always the case. As this vision shows, Israel has started out being built according to a plumb line, the truth of God's word. But now God comes to measure them again. He will expose the truth of their spiritual and moral state. In the early days, they were what they ought to have been, faithful to the covenant between God and Israel. The clear message of Amos is that they are no longer faithful. They no longer measure up. And I can't help but wonder if the church today would measure up. If we, you or I would measure up, especially those who have been Christians for a long time, would we found as faithful and true now, today, as we were when we began following Jesus? The final part of the vision specifically explains what God means when he says that he will not pass by his people. Again, this is a reference to the exodus when the angel of death passed by those who had the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the doorposts. When God comes in judgment, this time he will not pass them by. He will destroy both the religious places of false worship uh, and the dynasty of the king of Israel. Both the local high places and the state temple at Bethel will end up a heap of ruins. The people have not only ignored the law of God, but they've trampled on his grace. There's no mention of how God will accomplish this judgment and so the focus is on God himself as the force which will bring about Israel's destruction. Most of us will have heard the expression, don't shoot the messenger. It comes from the fact that in ancient times any messenger who brought bad news to the king would probably be normally be killed. The message that Amos speaks is hugely unpopular and unwelcome. It's bad news heaped upon bad news and so it's not surprising that he encounters opposition. Amaziah accused Amos of conspiring against the king and tries to get him banished from the northern kingdom. Now, I wouldn't ever want to suggest that prophets, preachers and pastors are always right. Far from it. As a pastor and a preacher, um, I, you know, I, I can say there's a lot of times I've not been right. But it's always a dangerous thing to attack the messenger of God. You better be sure that you are right. In this case, Amaziah paid the price of his opposition 
because God will always defend his faithful and true messengers. And preachers are often confronted with the accusations of getting at someone through the sermon and that shouldn't surprise us because when people don't like the message it's easier to blame the preacher than to acknowledge that God might actually be speaking indirectly into their lives. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 4 that a time would come when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Of course, the point that Bruce Coburn makes in his song, Maybe the Poet, is that you can do away with the messenger, but God will simply raise up another because his word must be heard. The preached word of God is sometimes full of encouragement, but as we've seen from Amos, sometimes it's a word of rebuke and judgment. All of us need to be careful when we hear the word of God being taught by anyone. Not only to not shoot the messenger because we don't like the message, but we need to be careful to listen for the voice of God and respond, whatever the word might be. Because it might be that you don't like that word because God's speaking to you about something in your own life or in my own life. Above all else, it's God's word that we need most. Thanks for listening.